Okay. Have you been the victim of unfair treatment by a business or a corporation? Has this ever happened to you? will be the baby of the year. Hello and welcome back to the Turbo Team Podcast. It has been a long time. So we took a week off, but we're back. I'm Jake Brend, your host. Kind of forgot how to do this. Today with me, we've got Ben Neeson and Alex Powell. How are you guys? Uh, obviously not as rusty as you, Jake. <laughs> yeah. Even Michael Jordan had off games. I am feeling like every Philip Seymour Hoffman role he's ever taken. Are you are you the are you the Michael Jordan of podcasting? No. <laughs> This is your baseball phase. It's Bill Simmons. I'm better. <laughs> I'm the most spates of podcasting. <laughs> okay, whatever. <laughs> so uh, we're back this week, and we watched. So we were going to record uh, last week. We we're actually we wanted to watch either Judas and the Black Messiah or Minari, but it came out on a Friday, and we typically record Thursdays. So it and that, and on top of some other weird things that happened. We just didn't record, so we're back this week with Judas and the Black Messiah, which is a movie directed by Shaka King, starring uh, Daniel Kuli. I can never say his name. Kuya, uh, Lakeith Stanfield, Ooh. the best, the best actor in the world. Uh, Dominique Fishback, uh, enemy, of, enemy of the podcast Jesse Plemons, and Ashton Sanders. Uh, it's a, it's a very good film about a true story that is kind of disturbing, but we'll let Ben take you through that in his synopsis and slash award nominations reading. So uh, yeah, before Ben gets the nomination, fun fact, this is the fourth Lakeith Stanfield movie or TV show we've reviewed. Um, Atlanta, uh, sorry to bother you, Uncut Gems, and now Juice and the Black Messiah, and this is the second Jesse Plemons one we've reviewed. So. It has to be like, a record or something. Someone we do, we just need to that. get Lakeith on at this point. You know, we need our intern Isaac Dykey to do the math. Isaac, if you're listening, get Lakeith Stanfield on the show. Thank you. All right, Ben, take us through the synopsis. Okay, Judas and the Black Messiah uh, follows Bill O'Neill, who infiltrates the Black Panther Party per FBI agent Mitchell and J. Edgar Hoover, as Party Chairman Fred Hampton ascends in the Chicago um, city world. Uh, falling for a fellow revolutionary on route, a battle wages for O'Neill's soul. Guess which part of that I uh, did off the top and dome, and which part I did off of IMDb. all of it. The the Chicago City State Park thing. You are very attentive, Jake. Oh, uh, Algie Smith's in this, uh, Ben. He's the uh, I forgot his name in Euphoria, but he's a football player. Yeah, I was just about to. <laughs> I was going to mention that earlier, just about how the cast is like it's a great cast. made up of a ton of different actors from Sorry to Bother You or Euphoria or just comedians in general. Which is um, Algie Smith is also 5'5". Five five. Oh, and it's got that guy from, um, he was in Sorry to Bother You too. He was in that donut show on Jermaine CBS. Fowler. Yeah, Jermaine Fowler. He's we'll, we'll, we'll go on. We'll we'll go about that in a sec. Though. He's a comedian. Oh, also Lil Ray Howery's in this weird cameo. But it is a, uh, it's uh that one student from Barry, 
Yeah, he he has like a pretty big role, but it just doesn't have any lines. He Okay, I was about to say he killed somebody, but that was someone else. Yeah. Um and, and then it has uh, the boss from Sorry to Bother You. So uh, Ben, what what awards was this nominated for so far? Yeah, um in this for this film and Judas and the Black Messiah. Uh, Daniel Kalula was nominated for Best Supporting Actor, and it was also nominated for Best Original Song. So, What song? Uh, it was called Fight For You. Is it the one in the beginning? I have no idea if that tells you anything about the song. Okay. Wow, you watch the movie? I, no, I watched it with the sound off and the subtitles on. Did you really? No. Oh, I was gonna say I just expert was, expert Ben. It's a, so, all I read was song plays in parentheses for three minutes. I couldn't tell what it was. So Ben, uh, since you watched this movie with no audio and only subtitles, do you want to give us your review of the film first? Yeah, I mean, I thought that all the actors were very expressive with their limited medium that they had and delivering to me with no sound on. Uh, no. Uh, but really, I thought the this was really well done. I mean, this is going to be sound kind of corny, but I thought of it sort of as an adverse departed in a sense. Where ah uh, yeah, I see it. Yep, all both, both got Martin. Both have Martin Sheen. Both have looked, Martin. Sheen. Who looked really old in this movie? <laughs> Martin Sheen looked like a Veggie Tail, and the- <laughs> he did. He looked like the, he looked like the, the cucumber and the tomato at the same time, and the squash. But okay, yeah, every undercover movie is the departed. But no, I thought it was really well done. The fact that we're just thrown right into um Bill's story as he is boosting cars and just sort of sort of making his money stealing on the street, and then he's forced into the situation where he has to become an undercover um Black Panther. Yeah, Black Panther and just infiltrate this political group that he starts to have ideals with and become aligned with, but he has the prison sentence over his head, so he has to go along with it as much as it destroys him inside. So I thought that was a very interesting take. And after seeing the trial of the Chicago 7, I was sort of interested in the character of Fred Hampton. So, yeah, that's what I was going to ask. Fred Hampton was, he was the one that was murdered during the Chicago 7 trial, right? Yes, and they that's even reference they even reference the trial too in this film. Yeah, yeah, I, that's what I, I guess I didn't catch that, but that's what I thought. Like at the end, I remembered I was like, "Oh wait, this is that guy." Because remember they said he was like gunned down in his apartment too. Yeah, which that yeah. scene was insane, like well, just very an emotional roller coaster. But yeah, and I thought that the cast was really interesting to watch because personally, I recognized more than a few of these actors for more comedic roles or more low down roles, whether they it'd be from euphoria with, um, Algie Smith, the donut shop on CBS with the dad from numbers. Yes. Yes. Jermaine Fowler or, um, the neighborhood on CBS. (laughs) Cedric, the entertainer. (laughs) Cedric, the entertainer was amazing as Fred Hampton. no, uh, yeah, I thought that the cast was really well done and they utilized from what primarily I know them as, as comedic actors in a very good sense. 
Even Lakeith Stanfield, in a way, is a comedic actor because, like, Sorry to Bother You was a comedy in a way, and then obviously Atlanta is a comedy. So, um, you've seen his Instagram lives of him dancing. You can't see him as anything other than a comedian, in a sense. Dude, I love Lakeith Stanfield. He's so just great in every way. Um, best friend of the podcast, <laughs> Lakeith. Please come on. We're super fans. This is, this is the Lakeith Stanfield podcast now. Um, we'll, we'll ask you if they really shot Adam Sandler on the set of Uncut Gems. <laughs> Rip. Uh, I think, so, Lakeith Stanfield obviously was the main character. I thought Daniel Kaluuya, where I, th- I thought Daniel Kaluuya's performance stole the show far and away more than any performance in this uh, film. Which is saying something because Lakeith Stanfield's performance was really, really good too. I think you especially saw that towards the end. But I think it says so much about how good Daniel Kaluuya was that you didn't really realize how good Lakeith Stanfield was in this as well. Even Jesse Plemons' character was really good. I thought the whole like 180 turn Jesse Plemons' character did towards the end was really interesting because in the beginning he's depicted as kind of like almost a good guy in the way while the rest of the FBI agents, like especially like Martin Sheen, are seen kind of as the enemy. And then towards the end, he does this 180 after ten, after seeing um, uh, William O'Neill at the uh, the Black Panther rally. He does this 180, and he's kind of threatening him. He's like, "Hey, man, if you're not going to do this for us, then you can go serve that five years in you know prison for impersonating an agent." And I thought that was a really interesting twist, especially like towards the end when he gives him the keys, and he's so calm, and like he Stanfield's like so on edge just about like everything. He's looking around. I thought that scene was insane, especially coming in directly after the raid on Fred Hampton's apartment. So above all else, like technically this is a really good movie. All the performances were extremely good, but I thought the, just the thing that stuck out easily the most to me was just how impactful this story was. And Ben, you were talking about just the comparisons that you could draw from this to trial, of the Chicago seven and just sheer impact of the story. And I thought that that was a very good comparison. This movie uh, depicted what it was like back in uh, the 60s to be a Black Panther. And I think that uh, something that we see a lot um, in Hollywood when talking about the Black Panthers is it is demonizing them. And yes, there are definitely some things that uh, the party did that was poor. But what's crazy about this is this group of Black Panthers in the final shootout shot one time after getting shot at 70 times. And I think that it was 99. uh, Oh, so 99 times. And I think when you look back at history, uh, it's kind of depicted as it was like a half and half type thing. Like, Oh, they forced violence. And they, they showed this through the very good storytelling in uh, imagery of comparing them to the KKK through Jesse Plemons character, where he's like, they're like the KKK just fighting for a different reason. And in reality, that was uh, not true at all, at least not for this specific, uh, at least not for this specific branch of the Black Panthers. And I thought just the story, the fact that he was 17 years old is just heartbreaking. And yes, he was 21 when he died. Yeah, he was only 21. Which is weird that they had, like, I get why they had Daniel Kaluuya play him, but Daniel Kaluuya is like 35. Yeah, it it wasn't a believable. Yes. He's in his 30s. He has to be. It wasn't a believable uh, 17-year-old. I, he's 31, but still, that's 10 years older. 
Well, no, Lakeith was 17. Oh, really? Yeah. So well, he, he was he was 17 when all of this happened, and he was tw- I believe he was 21 when he died. Fred Hampton was 21 when he died. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's just unbelievable how – I guess he didn't die at 21. Duh. He's still he's still living. No, he's not. Did you not see the oh, end? Oh, yeah. He, he committed suicide. He killed himself the day that PBS documentary was coming out. When, yeah. that, when I read that, I was, like my jaw dropped. I was like, oh, my God. Yeah. but That's awful. But he was 17 when the story started, mm-hmm. which is just – the fact that, I mean, yes, he was committing crimes. Yes, he was stealing cars. But the fact that he was manipulated and kind of blackmailed by that by the FBI to that point is just utterly disgusting. And it, I, I'm glad that this movie was made just to see, just so the story does see the time of day it deserves. So I didn't know he was 17, but that makes a lot more sense because in the beginning when he's like robbing those guys for their car – and his hat falls off. They're like, oh, he's just a kid. And I was like, dude, like, he's like 30. What are you guys talking about? He's like the same age as you. But now I know he's 17, so that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, so just in general, the, the story really hit the mark for me. And that's when when I'm watching a film, obviously I look for the cinematography. And I, and I look for the music. And I look for good performances. But for a, a film to leave an impact on me, it has to have a story like this that, I mean, it it really humanizes every possible character in this movie, even people in the KKK, even people uh, in the FBI that were murderers. And it also humanizes the Black Panthers and shows, you know, maybe these people weren't just radical, crazy people trying to kill everyone. They have legitimate reasons, and a lot of the times were really peaceful doing so. So I think that this movie really makes you look in the mirror to see uh, like how you're treating other people, how you're judging other people, how you're judging groups of people, I think, on both sides of the political spectrum. I think I'm guilty of uh, overgeneralizing one area of America into, into thinking, oh, they all think this way and they all act that way. And in reality, we're all just we're all we're all human. And that's uh, that's what I kind of took from this movie. How much did you empathize with Bill throughout the film and his decisions? A lot, I thought. Because um, like Jake said, he was kind of manipulated into this. He was like fine at first. And then like you could tell he like clearly kind of – it was obvious. He clearly kind of started believing the, the teachings of Fred Hampton and what the Black Panther Party stood for. And he was – he, he was getting as close with them as he possibly could for his own sanity and still being, you know, an FBI informant. So I felt, I felt really bad for him, especially towards the end where he was just so on edge about everything. You know, I felt, I felt really bad for him. And obviously he ended up killing himself because he couldn't live with what he did. So, yeah. I mean, yeah, just like talking about it, it was kind of the, the anti-departed, but in this case, Bill wasn't really given a choice. And I guess, Yes, he was given a choice. He was given the choice between uh, five years in prison and this. But when you're asking a young 17-year-old kid to choose between prison and no prison, yeah, most of the time, especially coming from a poor neighborhood, I would assume they're going to do pretty much whatever it takes to get themselves out of prison. So I, I empathize completely with Bill's character just because he – you could tell through – 
Stanfield's brilliant performance that he was actually starting to fall in line with what the Black Panthers believed, and he was starting to fight for that cause. Mm-hmm. But still, at the end of the day, he was an FBI informant and was ultimately hurting the cause. And that's that's where I think the story is so heartbreaking is because you can picture just, I mean, a kid, like literally someone my brother's age being put in this position. And I know that uh, it was literally a lose-lose situation no matter what happened for Bill. Yeah. I uh, like Keith Stanfield does a really good job of looking on edge. Like I, we see it a lot in, I think, Sorry to Bother You, and a lot in this, where just – I think the strongest part of his acting um, like talents are just how much he like realistically can portray just someone just on edge all the time. You know, someone that's always looking around, looking over their shoulder, always like making sure like who's in their surroundings. It's brilliant how he plays that like almost nerve, really nerve, uh, nerve wracking character. It was insane. Uh, Ben, I cut you off. What are you going to say? Uh, I was just going to say that I thought Bill's character was very interesting. The fact that he, when he came in, his first meeting with the Black Panthers, he was just trying to hit on one of the sisters that was there, Mm -hmm. which is kind of funny. And then he slowly had to work his way up and prove himself in a sense when his um, past was questioned or when his alliance to the cause was questioned. But then you can see him start to sort of I don't know the lines between empathizing with the cause and empathizing and becoming friends with other members is sort of drawn in a sense. But I felt that the fact that he was able to become such a leading force within the Chicago um, section of the Black Panthers and befriend uh, Fred and many of the other members in such a way that it kind of showed um, the real struggle that he was going at. The looks that he received when uh, Fred got out of jail and he saw the renovations done to the headquarters Mm -hmm. and how he felt shame primarily, but he also felt a little bit of pride for being able to be there for Fred, I guess, when he was gone. He really stepped up in a leadership role when he was gone. Yeah. And, and he was sort of bashful about it, especially when he received any praise. But then at the same time, when you flip the coin, he also was very despicable in the times where he'd get away with the headquarters being trashed. And then when he pulled away after an outburst and everyone believing that he needs to cool it, he was chuckling a little bit to himself just because he knew that it was because of him and he's getting away with it in a sense. Or at the shootout, especially when he like goes to the roof and draws fire, but then basically just leaves the other two Black Panthers to defend themselves in this impossible shootout while he just sneaks out the back door. Yeah. Yeah. And then I thought it was a really good scene was at the end with Lil Ray Howard's character where he is on edge and freaking out and he's not wanting to do what they're telling him to. And he wants to be direct. He wants to know, like, who do you know? Do you know? Do you know Roy? Like, what? Wh- who sent you? Uh, do you have a badge? I need to see a badge. I need to know that there's a reason for this. And then when he gets handed a badge, it's the one that he used at the beginning of the film, the fake one. Mm-hmm. So and, did he... go ahead. My bad. And yeah, I thought that that was very interesting that 
He was trying to justify his actions with a badge, with some sort of authority, but he wasn't even given one himself when he was asked for one. He wasn't given that sort of authority or reasoning or pathos for what he was doing. And when he turned around, he just saw himself and the selfish mistakes that he made and what draw him to this point. So did he poison Fred Hampton then? He, yeah, at the end. Because well, it makes poison, no sense. He just gave him a sedative. I was going to say, because it makes no sense why he wasn't waking up during that raid, you know? Well, yeah, it's because. Are we he, sure it was a sedative, though? Cool. There's no way it wasn't poison. Well, well, he said it's going to just make him sleep a little harder. He's like, you want to make sure he goes. I felt like that was just being like, oh, you're not killing him. You know, like, wink, wink. Well, he was asleep through all of that. They did say he had a pulse at the end before they shot him in the head. Well, yeah, because, and if you remember from the film, they said he was shot in the shoulder. So they didn't say he was, yeah. they said he was shot in the shoulder and then twice in the head. So yeah. I feel like, yeah, it made sense. And at the end, Bill was practically like about to inf- like fold in on himself. He was shaking and jittering so much because of what he was about to do when he asked the chairman if he could get him a drink or something watch yeah i know dude that that was like i get it's a movie but like that was so unbelievable like if someone came up to me and asked me stuff like that i was like are you okay man like why you sound so like scared you know beyond Um, the obvious title references jake did you get the last supper vibes from that scene specifically yeah totally i mean just like when I heard the name of this, I think Nate and I talked about it maybe back in September, October, just as like a movie he was looking forward to. And just off the bat, a, a good name for a movie is something that always just like draws in uh, the attention. So I thought that the name, obviously from a biblical perspective, kind of just interested me. And there was definitely the the Last Supper type vibe where uh, – <laughs> they knew it was going to go on there and they knew that there was a traitor. And I thought that the way that they showed the confusion in the characters about who the traitor actually was, was incredible. I mean, we've already mentioned it like two or three times with the departed uh, Stanfield definitely played off the like Matt Damon, like, Oh my gosh, look, there's a traitor in here and whoever yeah. it is, I'm going to kill you. And I just thought like, and that's one of the areas where you don't empathize with, bill that much because you're like well he's kind of a scumbag but but that's just kind of how i saw it and i i thought it was creative and i thought that it was a pretty cool religious tie into a lot of i mean the story of judas and jesus so i I already apologize to the listeners for bringing up the departed at the beginning of this it's gonna come back a lot speaking of this mind you guys any of all have the third act of Goodfellas? Or is that just me? I thought the third act of this was a little faster than Goodfellas. Where everything crumbles in a sense. Just how, like yeah, everything crumbles and the Panthers. main character is just so on edge about everything. And you can clearly tell that it's not going to end well, but I, like, I can see that. Goodfe- Martin Scorsese is the only reason for every movie having what it does in it. This all these references will tie back to actually one of my negatives, which we'll get to in a second. But uh, can you explain the title? Because I didn't get it. Uh, you guys are more versed on the Bible and religious stuff than I am. So could you explain it? So uh, Judas was one of yeah. 
You like you know that story. Mm-hmm. I know who Judas is. Yeah. Yeah. So Judas betrayed Jesus, mm-hmm. uh, and he knew it. And pretty much this was Judas, and they were pretty much comparing Fred Hampton to the Black Jesus, and that uh, Bill was just Judas betraying him. I think okay. that's. I think that's pretty much like the extent of it. What about the Last Supper? At the end. Well, the Last Supper is where. Jesus knew that Judas was going to betray him. Okay. And they kind of got the sense in this that it, in a way it was similar because uh, Bill knew that their apartment was going to get shot up the next day and just didn't say anything. Yeah. So, in a the last supper, I think the comparison is drawn at just betrayal. I think that's where, I think that's mainly where it comes from. That's really they interesting. Were, Does that mean? Dining. Does, with their yeah. close friends and family, basically. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Does that make you guys want to go back and rewatch it and just look for those religious um symbolisms and you know, like yeah, almost I, reenactments? Yeah, it does. That that was one of the most interesting parts of the film for me, I thought, was just yeah. uh like I usually when I'm watching a movie, I don't really think of the name that much. Like mm-hmm. you bring up Goodfellas. You think of the name Goodfellas the one time where Ray Liotta says like, Oh, you know, he's a wise, he's a good fella, something yeah. like that. But this movie, I continually found myself going back to thinking of the name and how it, and what it means in the story of the movie. And I think when you can do that, I think you've done a good job as a director. So hats off to Shaka King for that. This is his first like major film. I was going through his uh, filmography and he doesn't really have anything that big, or at least not that well known. This is his first real Big one. It got Oscar buzz almost right away. I think probably because of the cast and you know story. It's very Oscar, uh, best picture type story. But yeah, I thought I thought for a first major major film, Shaka Shaka King killed it. You know, um, I thought the lighting in this was really good, especially when they're in the car, like the scenes where they're driving in the car late at night. I felt like the lighting was really insane, like insanely good, which. Time back to our last episode, the little things. I think that lighting can be done really when it's done poorly. It looks really bad. This, I think, it's done really well because drive like, like you know, like uh, like Driver in all those movies, like uh, like the driving late at night can be such a great cinematic just look. And I think they did that really well. There's definitely a a. Uh, Something stylistically that caught my eye. I didn't think the coloring was anything too over the top. I thought there was a lot of great shots. The scene right after Fred Hampton gets out of jail and he's speaking to that crowd of people and he said, I am the I am the resistance, right? That's what he yeah. said. Mm-hmm. I thought that scene was insane. That Spoiler, that's probably going to be my favorite scene. Um, but I thought that was really well done just with the shots and the, the way it was written and just the look of it. I thought that was... Um, almost a climax in a way where you're like, okay, this is where things really start going. Um, I thought, I think the first act was a little slow. It's not really a negative I had. It's just, they're setting up this big story. I thought the second and third act, once it like picked up at the beginning of the second act, I thought the movie really found its footing then. And then it really became this great piece that it is, you know, right after the first act ended and the second act started after around the 45 minute mark. Um, like I, I, if a movie starts slow in the first act, that's fine as long as it picks it up. I thought once it picked up, it really got going and it really reeled you in. Especially the third act, I thought really 
had my attention all the way through. I guess, I mean, since Alex mentioned it, we can talk about our favorite scenes a little bit. I think my favorite scene was where uh, Bill pretty much accidentally almost revealed that he was uh, not an informant, but uh, that he was a cop. And they had the guns to his head and he had to start the car. I thought that the suspense in that was very well done. And Mm -hmm. I mean, just the, I guess I can't say small act because I've never hot wired a car, (laughs) but I mean, just the small practical effects of uh, hot wiring a car, they did it so well and they made it such an edge of the seat type feel to that scene where, I mean, it was so early in the movie, obviously he wasn't going to die, but you were thinking like, wow, are these people going to get onto him? Are they going to, are they going to start questioning him? Is this where everything's going to go downhill? And I mean, he, he manipulated them and that's so much what this movie's about is manipulation both ways. And I thought, again, I've, I've already mentioned the storytelling just very well done. And that, I mean, I don't know if that scene actually happened in real life. Like that very well could have been something just made up for the movie. And if it was, I think that that was a a great creative choice. Yeah. Ben, do you have a favorite scene? Yes, I do. I kind of alluded to it earlier where it's, um, Bill's just down on himself at the bar and then he's confronted by Wayne and then he's, yeah, he's demanding reasoning for his actions. He wants to know what all this is for, if there's some sort of authority for what he's about to do. But then he's just faced with the same slimy, um, underground, illegal, almost, act that he's been doing this entire time. Yeah. Just another person recounting that. And I thought that was really powerful. Um, do you guys want to get into negatives or do you have some more positives you want to rattle off? Um, I want to, I didn't even mention it, but Daniel Kalula's performance is amazing. He it's really, so good. It's so good. He commands good. the screen anytime he's on it. And yeah. it's wild to know that this was a real person. He wasn't even the main character either. Like he's going to get best supporting actor. Like he should get, I think he should at least be in the best lead actor category you know just i it doesn't feel like it was lakeith and uh like it was one lakeith two daniel kaluuya i think it was one a one b almost in a way because i think so too i think while lakeith's storyline really drives the plot forward you're watching this movie to watch daniel kaluuya's you know like if you took out lakeith stanfield's performance i think you would still watch this movie just or just to see uh just the Fred Hampton story and Daniel Kaluuya's a performance as Fred Hampton, you know, it's that good. Um, hmm. All right. Um, do you want to get into your negatives then Alex? Yeah, I can. Uh, I'll start with the smaller ones first. Like I said, we already touched on it. Like Fred Hampton and uh, Bill O'Neill are supposed to be like 21 and 17. Like he Stanfield's, 29 Dan Kluge is 31 like not very believable but whatever I, I don't think it really takes away from the movie that much I think it just kind of it's just something you're like yeah I wish they could have you know at least done a little more there um I don't think I have any smaller ones my biggest negative is 
It's a great movie. It's really well done. The acting is phenomenal. It feels like a movie I've seen before. It doesn't do a whole lot original. It feels like, like we said, The Departed meets like Black Klansman meets like Sorry to Bother You meets like even Goodfellas in a way. Like this, it's a great movie. It doesn't do anything original. And if it wasn't for the great performances, I don't think it would have stood out. It's going to stand out as much as my all-time films as it does, you know, just because the Fred Hampton story is really interesting, especially with Bill O'Neill's plot line and his kind of role on all of it. But it just like, it feel like, I, like we're making so many references because these other, to these other movies, just because like credit, I think, I don't think it's like, they beat this story to the punch. You know, if this movie came out before black Klansman or, or, um, the departed or goodfellas or any of that we'd be saying oh this is a lot like judas and the black messiah when reviewing those movies but it came out later and it just feels like it doesn't do a whole lot original you know it feels like something i've seen before even if it's a different story um i will say though watching trial of chicago 7 and then this really amplifies this story a lot knowing just those two stories. I, I, I highly suggest if you're going to watch one of the movies, you need to watch the other ones because I think they inter, interconnect so well that it creates a really good – you really get the whole feel of the story. But like I said, it just doesn't feel like something that's new and original. It feels like a lot like something I've seen before and it doesn't take away from how much I felt about the movie. It's just kind of like – it's not original, but they still do it well. You know. Anyway, what are you guys' negatives? To, to build off of your point, I guess this is a positive – one of the best things about Trial of the Chicago 7 was how mysterious Fred Hampton was. Like, it, yeah. he was such a huge part of the movie, but almost felt like they didn't focus enough time on his story and what actually happened. So, for them to make this movie, or I guess not them, for this movie to be made directly after, I agree, it completely builds off of each other. For negatives... Uh, I'd probably agree with the age thing. I thought that uh, the ending dragged a little bit. I thought that the it was pretty obvious from like the like hour thirty mark that Jesse Plemons was gonna. I, I mean that something yeah. bad was gonna happen. So it did kind of have that Goodfellas problem where, all right, we get it, we get it. They're panicking. They're under stress. Something bad's going to happen. Just kind of get to it. Yeah. But other than that, it, it's really all just nitpicking. I thought, I mean, the time of the movie, two hours and seven minutes was was perfect for it. Uh, the ending could have been paced a little better. But overall, I, I, I agree with everything that's been said. I think it was a very good film. Ben? Yeah. I uh, Personally, I disagree with the point about uh, them panicking or whatever you felt like that went on for too long i i disagree i thought that was done well but i digress i uh um, i'm really i do think that they do it better than this and they do good fellas but yeah yeah I, I would agree i agree with both of you anyway go ahead uh but yeah i mean my nitpicks are very very small uh what well, i can't really complain about it but i mean no shots really struck me exactly mm-hmm. I mean, that's not really a complaint, exactly. That's just, I don't know, an unsung expectation. It, it was shot normally, and that's, I mean, that, that's the that's the most you can ask for it anyways. 
With the um, material, I don't really think you need to be super artsy with it, you know. Kind of, it was right. a lot like Charlie Chicago Seven. Mm-hmm. Like, you can be safe with it; it's fine. The story and the plot and the acting really carries the dialogue. You, you don't, yeah, in dialogue, you don't need creative shots. So, yeah. If I had, if I was smarter about editing, I'd bring something up and grade it on that. But I'm not, <laughs> so I'll leave it alone. It wasn't a Bohemian Rhapsody. Uh, the score I thought was. Movie's so bad. Really good at points, but at times also very off-putting in a sense. Like the score was primarily made up of with jazz music, very aggressive or absurd jazz music, and in scenes like the one where he's given a badge by Low Ray Howard's character Wayne, that the sporat not the sporadic, the panicking sour tones of the blaring jazz band works very well. But at times when the, I don't know the anticipation is building and there's drama happening in the rising action. Uh, there are times where the drums would just be sporadically banging all over the place. It'd just be a drum solo. And for a film like Birdman, I think that works. And I acknowledge the choice and that does make sense thematically, but personally it just didn't necessarily hit with me. And these are all nitpicks, by the way. These are very nit nitty picks. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, I say we get into ratings unless anyone else has a final shot they'd like to add. But um, I'm not a little Ray Howard fan. Actually, I kind of think he's almost the female Tiffany Haddish in a way. So I was not a fan of him, but um, he had As like an actor six- or his performance. I just. I just don't think he's funny, and I think he a lot like Tiffany Haddish. He has the same trope where he plays just like a dumb black guy, which I don't know. I'm not saying I, I, I can't necessarily disagree. Well, so Ben, do you want to give your rating off first? Yeah, I I don't know about how you guys felt, but personally, I thought that this film was very well done. I loved the casting choices. I thought the historical context of the plot was very interesting and something I'll personally be looking into more. And yeah, I thought it was a very compelling story that was unique to the time period, yet timely now in a sense. And I feel that the historical um, events and just the overall execution of this film as a whole was very well done and personally i'm going to give it an 8 out of 10 yeah so i'll piggyback off of that i thought this film wasn't flawless by any mean but there were very few flaws and if there's one thing i've really grown to appreciate over the last year or so it's it's movies like this that obviously were set in a time period far different from ours but they find ways to show just how prevalent issues that were back there uh, in the sixties are still there today. So I think that those movies leave quite the impact with me. And for that reason, along with the incredible performances, the solid cinematography and just the touching and impactful heartbreaking story, I'll give this one an 8.75 out of 10. Alex. Um, I think they do a lot really well. My negatives, I don't think, took away from my rating at all. I think Daniel Kaluuya and, Kaluuya and Lakeith Stanfield are just so incredible in this movie. It's 
some of the best performances. I, Daniel Kaluuya's was a very, very memorable performance, and Lakey Stanfield is none to you know, not even not. A, it's a really close second. They're both just so good in this. Um, for that, I think I'll have to give that. Give this. I'll go in between. I'll go. Actually, I'll I'll go with you, Jake. I'll go eight point seven five. I want to give it a nine, but I didn't love it that much. But I still really, really, really enjoyed it. So I'll go eight point seven five. All right, I think I think that's Judas and the Black Messiah. If that's gonna do it for Judas and the Black Messiah, and now uh, for the other Judas, we've got Matt James, the traitor. Uh, we're gonna talk about the Bachelor in the last two episodes. I can give just a brief little rundown of what's happened the last two weeks since we last recorded. There has been a total of 11 girls sent home in two episodes. That is a lot. So there was MJ, which was pretty expected because they just depicted her as the villain, sort of. Ryan, Maggie, Brittany, none of those were really two impactful characters. Katie, my personal favorite and my prediction to win, was sent home in brutal right. fashion after Matt picked up the rose. Mm-hmm. Anime the program, Matt James. Yeah, he did that like three times. He like I know he, he did it to the Abby rose too. Like, okay, okay, I can't give this. To okay, you. would you would you rather have him just leave it on the table and just be like, okay, yes, good night, yes, I would. Yeah, I feel okay. I I'll defend it and say that. Okay, maybe he didn't have to pick it up, but I think it was good that he addressed it directly or gave his reasonings for why. It's a little, it's a little funny that imagine being the he, girl that went picks on one up on this one. rose and you're just like, oh, sick! I'm going on the next round. And he's like, I can't give you this. And like, what the fuck? Why'd you pick it up then? You know, that's kind of funny that he'll use his one-on-one dates. Yeah. And at the end of them, he'll just be like, no, you're going home. Yeah. Well, okay, so that gets me into my problem. I think with this season. It's that it feels like you don't know who these women are yeah. because he's using these one-on-one dates to send them home. Usually the one-on-one yeah. dates are, are supposed to be to get to know the ones that he knows are going to be at the top. Mm-hmm. So right now his top four, I guess I'll read off who got eliminated last week. Serena C, Jacenia, Chelsea, Piper, Abigail, Kit. So that leaves the final four as... Rachel, who's racist, apparently. Um, we'll tackle that, yeah. Yeah, we'll talk. We'll talk about that in a bit. Bree, uh, Michelle, and then Serena P. But anyways, if he's known for a while that those are going to be the final four, he should be focusing his one-on-ones and his conversations with them so that we, the audience, and him get to know them more instead yeah. of leaving us into these final four weeks. Like, I, I mean, I. I don't know who's going to win. I have no clue. I have no clue who even likes. I know who won. So, yeah, we're, Matt, we're, Matt was, James is making me angry. Do I remember correctly when Chris Harrison, author of The Secret Letter, said at the beginning of the season that uh, it's 35 contestants, like an all high for how many they've had in one season? Yeah. He said they had a record number of submissions, so people that applied. I don't know if he said he said thirty five and yeah, well, sure so it was thirty was originally, and then they brought in another five. So <laughs> yeah, it was it was the most, but it originally started with the same amount as they usually did. brought in a five and a quarter contest. Five and once I once stayed around, you know. So I guess oh, it was we a good decision Michelle 
We didn't even touch on Heather, who was that, on a oh prior season, who showed up, quarantined. She made it known that she quarantined just to be able to be with me. Those Matt. quarantine videos were some of the worst anything I have ever seen. The whole, like, oh, I'm like Rapunzel. I'm going to let down my hair thing. I almost turned it off. I was, was like, so fun. <laughs> so, gets sent home 20 minutes later. Yeah. But then I was like, hated her. And then I felt bad because she's like, hey, like, I was on two years ago, but like, I'm like, kind of, I'm like friends with a friend of Matt. And they're like, get the fuck out of here. We don't like you. And it's like, yo, like, you, they were so mean to her, like, right away. Well, it's, think about what they've been, they've been quarantining for six weeks. Yeah. Well, she then, quarantined too. Shut up. Then, then more people showed up, and they've been on edge the entire time. And then there just more competition comes in. I get it. I think it's. I think they were especially even more on edge because this would be the second time they brought in someone to compete with, like the ones that were there first. You know, say, like, it. I, say it. Say the OGs. I'm not gonna say it. Like I would be mad too. You know. Also, they made like a Clearly. funny point where they're like, "You really think you can fall in love with Matt and get him to marry you in two weeks?" It's like, well, you guys are trying to do it in like eight weeks, so you only get six more weeks than she does. Like people it's date for like people date for like three years before they get married, you know? Like this reality TV. Yeah, I know. Like, you guys are all. Everybody here is rushing it. She's just rushing it a little more than you guys are. So I don't know. You think you're on some high horse, you know? But it's so funny that did someone make it to the final four without having a one on one? Abigail almost did. No, Jasenia was closer because Jasenia he was another one where he like kicked her on their one on one. Just say I I have problems with Jasenia. I did too. Anyway, I didn't like her. That's so funny that they made it to the final five, final six, what have you, without having individual one on one time. Just three or four like ten minute talks. Jasenia's one on one. Jasenia's one on one was so funny because. Like they hinted at the scene where like where he like picks her up and puts her on the car and they start making out. Like they showed that in previews, acting like it's this big romantic moment, like, oh, maybe she's like farther in the lead than we think. And then in reality, she like asked him like it was all her idea. He like clearly didn't want to do it. You know, I thought that was very funny. And then on the date, she's like, I'm falling in love with you. And he's like, Thanks for sharing that with me. Um, I can't give you this rose, so can I walk you out? And it's like Oh God, man! I mean, he has to at that point. Oh, I know. Either either way, he'll just s- kind of stand there, stone faced and mouth gaped, no matter what the question is, which is kind of funny. I, the thing with Matt, I don't think Matt's a bad guy. I don't even think he's been a bad bachelor. The guy's no. just boring, you know. Like he's not that entertaining, and we don't really get to know a lot about him. Like they didn't even they barely touched that he like played in the NFL for like a preseason or that he was like a four-year player at wake forest you know you heard it here first folks alex powell now be starting a campaign to have bryce hall be the next bachelor (laughs) oh my he needs a personality in the house angel boy (laughs) i love you angel boy um yeah so he's just boring and i think it doesn't make for great tv it was do all the bachelor and former bachelors and bachelorettes like know each other? Like that's what I was thinking. Like it's just a like huge a, click, honestly. He's like is grooming. It, is it like them. a? I was like, how did you guys meet? <laughs> is it like a Heisman fraternity? Type so thing? I, it might be, but also so 
Heather knows Hannah B. And Hannah B was the bachelorette and a top three and Tyler C was a top three contestant on her season. And I don't know how she, he knows Matt, but they must've picked Matt as the bachelor. Number one, because the first, uh, non-white bachelor and number two, they're like, Oh, you know, this guy, we kind of, we know a lot about you. He speaks very highly of you. Like you clearly would be a good contestant to be the bachelor, you know? Because a lot of these bachelor and bachelorettes are just a lot of like they have a connection somehow to either former contestants, famous people, whatever you know. So I think it's I think they're just like oh you know Tyler Tyler was a fan favorite. You seem like a great guy. We'll bring you on. You know, play pool. The Bachelor loves guys that played in the NFL, uh, which is kind of funny. Yeah, then they just they always talk them up like they're best friends with everybody. Cole, like here, here's my best friend, uh, Tony Amagacho. He's a professional drifter from Japan, and he yeah. doesn't speak English. He's my best friend. Oh, and then Heather and Hannah B know each other because they were both batch. They were both bachelor contestants on Colton season, and Colton played in the end. Colton was the the virgin bachelor. That was like their whole thing. It was like he's never had sex before, and then they're like. All right, let's make eight weeks of a season of this, you know. And no one, I guess it wasn't very entertaining either, but the Nate Magic story. So, Alex, I don't want to hear for I don't want to hear from you Sorry. on this topic because you know uh who won, but Ben, what what are your thoughts on the four remaining candidates going into hometown weekend? Who do I think is going to win? Just yeah, who do you think's gonna win? What are your brief thoughts on just the four remaining contestants? I feel like there are no clear favorites whatsoever. So, I feel I like Serena P, but I feel like she's gonna drop off just because she doesn't want to. So I will say that once you find out who the winner is, it is kind of like you do definitely it's obvious now. Look it would be obvious looking back on it. That's the only hint I'm gonna get. That doesn't help at all. I feel like that's they a spoiler. Will when you find out who it is. I feel like that's a spoiler. It's not, but because instantly when you say that, I'm not gonna look at you and I don't want you to say anything, but I think of Michelle. And I don't know who you'd think of, Jake, at all. I think of Rachel. Really? Yeah, so But okay, you said so you said something about Rachel and I saw that on Twitter, but didn't so, care. So So first off Accusations have come in the last week that Rachel bullied, uh, censor warning, she bullied uh, girls in her high school that dated black guys. And she, while in college, attended a uh, fraternity party that was known to be racist. And the, theme of, in, themed. and the theme of the party was plantation themed. Yeah. So where she's a contestant. was this? So she's from Georgia. I assume it's Ole Miss, Mississippi State, Alabama. Something like that, yeah. Georgia, something like that. Some big southern school. But, yeah, so, I mean, I don't – it's awkward now, especially since they filmed all of this. And imagine being Matt, like, learning about this. Like, yeesh, you know. Um, And and maybe it's – I mean, maybe it's nothing. Maybe it was yeah. just. I mean, maybe it was just like they were wearing old dresses, and then the accusations are completely made up. But I mean, it's still something that I think affects the viewing, and is it makes Rachel 
much yeah. less likable. And Rachel, it- to me, has always had kind of like the the Hannah Ann type to her, where she always felt like she was going to make it to the end, but I never found out why. Like yeah. she was just, I don't know. She just seems stuck up. And Ben, I'm sorry, I cut you off. You go ahead. Yeah, apologize. Um, no, but isn't the aren't the last couple episodes live or recent? I think the very last episode is live. It's like it's like two three like hours. It's like a long live episode. Well, they do a Monday Tuesday night live yeah. episodes. Yep, and then uh, like that the very last worth one it at all. The very last one's just like an interview with the two that win. Well, Matt James and whoever won. Yeah, Matt James and Victoria. Um, what out of the eleven contestants who were sent home, which one ticked you off the most? I can guess which. Abigail, it. Abigail, Abigail. Really? Just because he sent her home for falling behind? It's not her funny. fault, you know. Like he was like, yeah, they had I just very don't care about you conversations anymore. when they met, and he's like, clearly, like you were in the lead for the longest time, and. I just didn't feel like I needed to build a connection with you. And then I just kind of forgot and you fell behind. That's not her fault, man. That's just you being a bad dude, you know, like this is you being an asshole. And I think that you're probably going to think I'm going to agree or disagree with Alex on this and say Katie, but I think I do agree that Abby was one that made me the most mad. And I think that's because, so Katie was my favorite, but they did make a good point that, Really, the only thing that Katie did while there was not create feud, but she would call other people out and mediate stuff. There was never really anything where she actually built a relationship with Matt. So I think that she was my favorite contestant, but her and Matt actually never really like gelled together. So it made me mad, but I was also I also kind of understood at the same time. So I think Abby got totally Abby got screwed. I I think she was objectively the best candidate and due to matt's incompetence she got sent home there's a lot of push for her to be the next bachelorette which i'd watch that season i like abby but um what did you think of katie's one-on-one date man it was it was tough to watch watch. (laughs) that might have been the worst one-on-one date yet i thought it was a creative idea But then just watching it, I was like, this is stupid. Like, this looks like a Impractical Jokers episode. That's exactly what I thought. I just thought of, like, Sal falling to the ground, holding his stomach, laughing <laughs> at, at something that wasn't even that funny. I can't wait for the new Impractical Jokers reboot to come out with Matt James as the lead guy. Because he's such a big prankster. He has such he a says. huge personality, too. He's so bombastic in his jokes and genuinely funny and interesting okay yeah it's like watching it and i was like this is what you had an idea for is just pranking this dude as like this one your first one-on-one day with this chick jasenia seemed like super whiny the entire time i hated jasenia uh in my notes i forget exactly what this was from but i had said jasenia is passive saying how she understands how the other girls couldn't handle it but she's built different She's just, she was weird. No, she just wasn't a good contestant, I didn't think. There wasn't a clear connection there. She definitely was more in love with him than he liked her, you know, so. I, uh, I think it was the episode a week ago, but I think that Serena C definitely deserved to leave, if not sooner. Yeah. But Chelsea deserves better. 
because she she just didn't get any time at all, really. Which one was Chelsea? Uh, the short tall, hair, short blonde. Oh blonde. yeah, yeah, yeah. Chelsea, yeah, yeah. Chelsea, I think Chelsea and Abby were the two like best people that I saw. I guess that got an above average amount of screen time, com- like compared to the thirty five people. I think if they both got think in a sense, but whatever. I think if they both got more time, they would have been in the final four. I just don't think they got enough time, you know. Yeah, um, I liked both of those two a lot. So, one more one on one day. What did you guys think of Serena P's? That was interesting. I thought. I don't know. She just doesn't seem like top four material to me. Serena P. Yeah, I love Serena P. Take that I, back. No lover, but I think <laughs> I think she's a great personality. I think she just seems like a really good person. You know, she's very genuine. Like she doesn't really chase after Matt. She really makes Matt kind of chase after her in a way. And that, like she said, like that wasn't something she was comfortable with. That was and so almost, funny when he was like, like, "I loved looking into your eyes." sitting so close to you and she was like yeah that was awkward i hated that and as much as i like serena like watching that like it's clear that her idea of like being in love and matt's idea of being in love are kind of two different things so i don't think they'll they necessarily make a great couple let alone husband and wife you know so um but so yeah it was very clear she wasn't into it at all and i thought that was really funny she was the first person to get two one-on-one dates too, and like he had some like <laughs> very sexual yoga plan thing, which I thought was interesting. Uh, ben, what did you think about Kit's uh, leaving the show? Kit kind of annoyed me throughout the. Okay, not annoyed me. Uh, I just liked her less and less throughout the show. When once uh, you found out she was talks more, didn't like her. Uh, <laughs> a, no, a, a continuation of Ben's brand of not liking mainstream things. Yes. But what mainstream? Who's the mainstream contestant? Uh, Kit, because she's famous. Oh, yeah, whatever. Um, but no, she always said like the most nothing remarks that added nothing to the conversation, which is kind of funny. But at this, it was funny in an ironic sense. I don't have anything written down specifically, unfortunately, so I can't read them back. But. I thought that was funny when they had the interview or whatever, and Kit said that she's upset for losing the valuable time that she's gotten to have so far. Yeah. She was like, I feel like I could use, I have so much I need to say, and I'm losing up on so much time with Matt. But then, like, when she did have her one-on-one, it was just, oh, uh, it was so hard having a successful parent who got (laughs) to spend time with me as much as she did. As they made cookies. Yeah. Uh, I think say what you want about Kat. Yeah, she was kind of that comment was kind of pompous that she was like, "Oh, it's hard growing up rich." Whatever. Um, it's still funny that she's eight years younger than Matt. Yeah, that's what I was gonna say. Good for her for kind of realizing I'm a little too young to be on this show right now. Like Matt's almost thirty. He clearly wants to start a family like now. Then she's a year older than us, so she's still in college. She's got one two years left, so. Good for her. I think Hannah Ann last year kind of didn't realize that. Also, I thought Hannah Ann was kind of dumb, but she didn't realize that. And she was like, Peter was 30 and she was 22 and she's ready to throw away like 
all these post-college years just to marry some guy she met that she's been dating for eight weeks on a reality TV show. Like, say what we want about Kay, but good for her for kind of making that realization, even if it was this late in the show. You know, no, I was watching this with a friend of the program, Max, and we we were both in agreement that despite like how odd Kit was, it was very weird that she made the mature decision to go home. And I thought, mm-hmm. I was like, you know what? I, I can respect Kit for that. Yeah. I got the clout and I'm out. Very true. I did see a lot of tweets about that being like, she was on the show enough to promote her because she just started like a new clothing brand like last year. <laughs> um, She branched off from like her mom's clothing brand. And she's like, she got on enough promoter clothing brand and then left uh, before things got really serious for meeting her parents. Yeah, that <laughs> classic that, kit. That doesn't have to be the reason, but that's probably the reason. Well, I think that's going to do it for this week's episode of the Turbo Team Podcast. We were able to wrap up a lot of stuff that happened on The Bachelor. Alex, go ahead. Um, we acknowledged the Golden Globe nominations came out. We'll do. We'll talk more about it closer to – we'll probably talk a little bit – probably talk about it, the predictions before, and then we'll talk a little bit after after. But for the most part, we're going to do more in-depth coverage on the Oscars this year just because it's a bigger award that more people care about. So just wanted to throw that out there. Program, programming like- known as. And much like in the vein of Chris Harrison, author of The Secret Letter, his classic uh, thing where he goes up and tells the contestants that this is the last rose when it's clearly the last rose. Um, he says it every time it's with the same cadence. And it's so, so very, it's so obvious it's the last rose. Okay, whatever. Uh, the joke didn't land. Uh, but um, no, uh, listeners, this is now the end of the podcast uh the podcast will be over after this we hope you enjoyed this week's episode of the turbo team podcast our social medias are linked in the bio follow us on twitter at the turbo team pod you can listen to all episodes on apple Podcasts, spotify or any other platform where podcasts are listened to thank you for listening